Welcome to the Alien Wellness Think Tank podcast series. The Think Tank is an emergency medicine organization led by residents for residents to improve the culture of wellness during residency training. Take a listen to our conversations with our wellness strategists and mentors. My name is Matt Malamina, part of the Wellness Think Tank. Today, we're here with Lieutenant Colonel David Grossman. He's a former Army Ranger, professor of psychology, and he's written two books as far as I know. I think, are you, are you writing any more? Right. Um, uh, don't get started. There's quite a bit there. <laughs> we got uh, those are the two key ones, on combat, on killing. My latest one is Assassination Generation. We just put out a book released from Amazon.com on uh, Bulletproof Marriage. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've got, I've got two kids books. I've got a couple of novels and uh, a couple of others in there that we've had some impact. But uh, we'll stay focused today. The, the key book today is really my book on combat, psychology and physiology of, of human conflict. And that's where we'll uh, be working on it today. That's a book I commend your attention. It's uh, Marine Corps Commandant's Required Reading, Army and Air Force Recommended Reading, uh, issued in the DA Academy, issued to the Marshals Academy. And uh, that's primarily what we're working out of today is on, on combat. Fantastic. And I wanted to speak to you today to try and take some of these these theories and experiences and, and knowledge that have been applied in the military and, and law enforcement and for fire and police and try and take them and apply them to emergency, especially emergency medicine doctors. I mean, it can be almost any physician out there. But I think in terms of emergency medicine physicians, we tend to be in a high stress, high volume environment where we're faced with some sort of critical thinking, critical reasoning, or critical stress scenario. So somebody who's in cardiac arrest, or somebody who's been shot or stabbed, or somebody who can't breathe well. And we have to deal with that at a moment's notice. And then from there, go back to our daily task of taking care of the people who've come in with chest pains and belly pains and headaches and dizziness. I think reading through your book and having sat through one of your lectures before, I thought your topics and your ideas would be great to kind of discuss that with other emergency physicians who would listen to this and who would glean some information from there and we'd go from there. So, for example, one of the questions that I, that I had for you was if we're faced with this stressful scenario. So, for example, somebody comes in in, in cardiac arrest, they have no heartbeat, and we have to go from our normal daily tasks of talking to the people who have abdominal pains and chest pains who are are bread and butter in terms of patients. And then we go into this high stress scenario. How would you have somebody prepare for something like that? Um, And how would you have them deal with it? Well, let me start at the beginning, Matt. I teach resiliency, the idea of of individuals who can encounter these stressful events and not be troubled by them. And, And that really is the majority. We'll talk about that. But the first step in resiliency is motivation to understand how badly the world needs what you have to give. And part of that is understand how bad the situation is. And the whole profession of criminal justice is fundamentally flawed right up front because um, we, how do we measure crime injustice? Oh, the murder rate. The murder rate is the gold standard. No, the, the murder rate is being held down by medical technology. It's this fundamental dynamic that underlies violence across our world. We try to measure it by the number of dead people and the leaps and bounds of medical technology is holding down the murder rate. If we had World War II level medical technology in Afghanistan, we'd probably have 10 times the dead American troops. If we had Vietnam level medical technology in Iraq, we'd probably have four times as many dead American troops. And the same thing is true in our streets. 
A major UMass Harvard study told us if we had 1970s level medical technology, the murder rate would be four times what it is in America. And that data is over 20 years old. The leaps and bounds of life-saving technology in the last 20 years is astounding. So we got to begin with a fundamental reworking of our view of the world. And we take the number of dead people and we measure that as, uh, you know, the murder rate completely underrepresents the situation. And we, we go back to 2006 and we had 17,000 Americans murdered. By 2008, we're down to 16,000. By 2009, 15,000. 2010, 14,000. This is medical technology doing its job. And then it, it levels out. Now, if we go back across years, it's been up and down, but it, it leveled out and then in the last two years, it has exploded like nothing we have ever seen in the history of our nation. Now, I asked my audiences, how many of y'all saw this in the news? How many of y'all saw this in the newspaper? If this was the stock market, we'd hear about it every week. Here's this fundamental dynamic of what's happening within America. In 2015, there was 1,700 more Americans murdered the year before. The numbers should be coming down. In 2015, we had 2016, we had 1,300 more Americans murdered the year before. Now, the last we have data for, and it actually just came out last month, the, uh, the 2017 data came out, and we went down about 120. <laughs> and, and it should be down here. Yeah. What I want you to understand is we're living in stunningly, profoundly violent times. And our enemy is denial. We've got to defend ourselves, defend our, our places of work. Uh, we've got this mindset that if there's if we don't have somebody there that can shoot back, then bad things won't happen. And, and it's just the opposite. And so this failure to prepare for these violent times is this thought that, that the bad men won't go away if we do nothing and, and that everything's all peachy keen. We, we've got to understand how bad it is, but also... Understand how desperately the world needs what you have to give. The life-saving skills, these murders that are prevented, these lives that are saved, is one of the most one of the most fundamental and powerful contributions any human being can ever make. The value of what you bring to our civilization is there any greater value than saving a human life, than preventing a murder through medical technology that saves this life? And so the first step is understand the magnitude of the threat and how desperately the world needs what you have to give. Your sacrifice is for a noble and worthy purpose. Your courage, your compassion, your competence shines bright for the darkness of the age. The next step in resiliency is really the most important one of all. It's the elephant in the living room. It's the area where we make the greatest difference with first responders and, and everybody in our civilization. If you're severely malnourished and somebody attacks you, obviously those stressors can amplify each other. That's why the Holocaust survivors and POWs can have such a hard time of it. The malnutrition combined with the captors did to them, those stressors can amplify each other. I, I tell my audiences, I, I'm willing to bet nobody here is severely malnourished. Probably nobody here is severely ill or injured. Entirely too many of us are sleep deprived. If you're sleep deprived and the bad stuff comes in, you're far more likely to have a, an aversive psychological response to what happens. The elephant in the living room is sleep deprivation in our first responders. Truck drivers, air traffic controllers, nuclear power plant operators are all required by law to get enough sleep. 
but first responders aren't. That should enrage us. What we got is, is a couple of fundamental dynamics. Number one is sleep is a biological blind spot. Our bodies are incompetent at making us get enough sleep because it always happened naturally. Throughout history, every night across untold eons, it got dark. And from the very primordial roots of our species all the way up until 100 years ago, every night it got dark. And firewood was rare and precious commodities. You had so much talking, so much sex, there was nothing else to do. You went to sleep. Your body didn't have to make you sleep. It happened naturally. Now, our bodies are good at getting air, food, water, but our bodies are absolutely incompetent at getting enough sleep. And 100 years ago, uh, we, we emitted electricity and electric lights and television and video games. And suddenly we can go 24-7 for untold eons. It got dark and there was nothing to do. And, and now there's incredibly addictive, vibrant, desirable things for us to do. And it's eaten us alive. We're in the middle of a civilization-wide epidemic of sleep deprivation. We're going to talk more about that. First, understand that it's a biological blind spot. Second, understand that the video games and the social media is a social blind spot. Transitioning, then, there's two incredibly stupid things we're doing in the first responder community. Number one is 12-hour shifts. Every department that goes to 12s, every major department, California Highway Patrol last year, the year before last, came off of 12-hour shifts. 10,000 people moved to 12-hour shifts, and it was a disaster. Accidents exploded, internal affairs investigations exploded, complaints exploded. A Harvard study tells us the single greatest predictor of ethical failure in law enforcement is sleep deprivation. The single greatest predictor of use of force failure in law enforcement is sleep deprivation. After 18 hours without sleep, we're impaired judgment. And this is a key thing. Hang on to this. Coming out of sleep deprivation is impaired judgment. After 18 hours without sleep, we're impaired judgment equal to 0.08 legally drunk. After 24 hours without sleep, we're impaired judgment equal to 0.10 above legally drunk. After two nights without sleep, you are psychotic. Any graduate of Army Ranger School, I'll tell you all about hallucinations on the third day without sleep. You are truly psychotic. You're hallucinating. And we're in the middle of a civilization-wide epidemic of sleep deprivation. Now, in our military, in the active duty military, we study our suicides intensely. The only people who have truly good, solid data that study every suicide, call it what it is, active duty military. And in the active duty military, our suicides have nothing to do with combat. A non-combat pet is as likely to take life as a combat pet. Our suicides have a lot to do with sleep deprivation. Some of the data tells us sleep-deprived people can be up to five times more likely to take their life. Then Russia, when the communists were in control in Russia, the suicides were horrendous, and they locked down on alcohol and brought suicides down. The communists collapsed, alcohol thrived, suicides up. In recent years, Russia has brought suicide back down by locking down on alcohol. We always knew that alcohol and suicide were related. Alcohol creates impaired judgment. You make a bad decision. Never get a chance to rethink it. But the most pervasive form of impaired judgment is sleep deprivation. And around the planet, we are facing an epidemic of teen suicides and preteen suicides. I I can't find any portion of the planet that's not just being devastated by teen suicides. And you got to say, what is the new factor? And the sleep deprivation is destroying us. 
And again, let's go back to our 12-hour shifts. At the end of the 12-hour shift, people are exhausted, and they will say things, and they will do things they regret for the rest of their life. So the data is there. The 10-hour shifts are barely doable, but the old-timers do what they were doing. Eight-hour shifts, put a cap on overtime, and bid for your shift based on seniority. Because here's the other thing we're doing. The single most destructive, corrosive thing we can do is rotating shifts. It takes up the full year to fully adapt to night shift. There is nothing you can do that will psychologically shatter and undermine every person you have than rotating shifts. Line everybody up. Once you Rotating shifts once a month. No, line everybody up once a month. Kick them right dead in the nuts. And that's better than rotating shifts. I get over that in a week. But rotating shifts will mess you up for, 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 for weeks and weeks and weeks. And again, for months. But what happens is that the new guys get on duty, the cops. And I, it's, ah, oh, you know, I, I, I don't want to wait to get seniority to be on day shift. This, this is no fair. Let's rotate shifts. Well, suck it up, buttercup. Because rotating shifts means everybody loses. I'm a huge science geek. My favorite website is sciencedaily.com. I check it every day through every category. Dig deep in every category, every day, sciencedaily.com. And the data on rotating shifts is, is just overwhelming. You're taking years off people's lives. If you're rotating shifts, just start saving money now. You're going to be sued. You're going to be successfully sued. And the rotating shifts destroys families. The recent research on this is overwhelming. Families can handle night shift. Families can handle day shift. They cannot handle rotating shifts. And you've got people making life and death decisions who are sleep deprived. And it is a negligent, negligent act. And so this sleep is error when we make the greatest difference. So what I've told you so far, most of the people listening to this, they can't control their shifts, although they should and they've got to get that fixed. They can't control a lot of things, but there are things you can control. And sleep 101 begins with nap 101. So I tell people naps are grand. Naps are good, but shoot for 30 minutes. Now, it's a minimum nap. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not a good nap. It's a minimum nap. You're driving down the road. Your head is bobbing. Take a little, little micro nap. Okay? Your head is bobbing. Pull over. Put your head down for 10 minutes. The alarm goes off. A kind of a startle response. But as far as sleep deprivation goes, that 10-minute nap is a total waste of time. Put your head down for 30 minutes. The alarm goes off. You're bleary and you're groggy and you don't want to get up. You know why? Because you're asleep. It takes 30 minutes for a solid, sound, deep cycle. Dang it. I don't want to get back up again and sleep. And anything less than 30 minutes is pretty much a waste of time. My cops are putting uh, nap rooms in the police department. Not for the guys on duty. We're not firefighters. But you work a night shift, and in two hours you have to be in court to testify. No way you could get home, get a good nap, and get to court. But if there's a quiet, dark place where I can crash for half an hour, an hour, that's solid gold. The snooze alarm is an evil little button, but a 10-minute snooze is just enough time to get their star response. We've all been there. And I'm absolutely serious. Never touch that snooze alarm again. Now, do some research on this. It's like you're trying to train your body to do 10-minute naps. Your body tries to adapt to 10-minute naps, and it can't do it. You're doing physical and psychologically harm to yourself with that snooze alarm. And you get a 10-minute snooze, another snooze, a third snooze. You just threw away 30 minutes of the day. Those three snoozes, no value as far as sleep goes, then no value as far as your life goes. 
That's right. Tell everybody, I will teach you a trick that'll put 30 minutes of quality sleep back in every day. That adds up to three and a half hours sleep back in every week. That adds up to two pure, beautiful nights sleep back in every month. That adds up to 24 nights sleep back in every year. Very simple. Set the alarm a half hour later and get the hell out of bed. And if you have to, and I'm serious, set the alarm for 701, 702, 703, 704, 705, and train your body to get out of bed. And one last thing. What about willpower? Grit. Determination. Can you have that violent event happen and shrug it off? Are you in control of your life? Is your life in control of you? Was the first act of every day to surrender to your body? Was the first act of every day to roll out of bed and take charge? The person, the you that goes to bed has got to make you that wakes up in the morning get the hell out of bed. And I'm serious. Set the alarm, 701, 702, 703, 704, and get out of bed and train your body. It's not going to do it to hit that snooze alarm. I got to roll out of bed and train your body. Muhammad Ali, one of the great champions in history, he said championship began for him every morning. The alarm went off. He hated running so bad. He put his running shoes on top of the alarm. When he went to hit, when he hit the alarm, he grabbed his running shoes. That is championship discipline. And folks, this is just one of the most important things we can do right now. Rock your world. You must sleep in a truly dark room. The sleep lap in a truly dark room. The bathroom light is on and the door is shut. The light coming under the crack of the bathroom door is enough light to stop your body from producing the melatonin that you need. Throughout the history of our species, we slept in the dark. Moonlight through the trees in a hut, in a cave was all there ever was. Dark, dark, dark. We're designed to sleep in the dark. Uh, the dark, the research tells us just the glowing dial of a clock. The glowing numbers of your clock is too much light. So what I strive for is I, I get in as dark a room as I can, and then I wear a sleep mask. And the combination of those two are one of the best things you can do. And you must train your children to sleep in the dark. Babies are sloshing with melatonin. Babies can sleep anywhere. By the time we become teenagers, we've got vastly less melatonin. As we get older, it gets less and less. By the time we become teenagers, and here's this, here's this suicide risk, here's this drug overdose risk, here's this, this, uh, this traffic accident risk. If we have kids, we should be scared sick about suicide and drug overdoses and traffic deaths. And the one thing we can do is make them get sleep and make them get quality sleep. Train them to sleep with that sleep mask on. Train them to sleep in a truly dark room. They don't need it when they're really young. By the time they're teenagers, they need it. One thing you can do right now to rock your world is sleep in a truly dark room. Need a quadruple shot latte to get going in the morning. A 64-ounce Big Gulp Mountain Dew to carry you through the morning. Another couple of triple shot lattes at lunch. And a six-pack of Rock Bowl Star Monster Energy Dink after lunch. Caffeine is one of the most effective drugs we've ever found that temporarily limit your vulnerability with minimal side effects if we're not abusing the drug on a daily basis. We all know about habituation of drug. We all know about building tolerance to drug. And we've all seen little crackheads who are mainlining the drug to stay normal. That's what's happening with people with caffeine. So here's the challenge. Take the challenge. Go cold turf your caffeine for one day. Cut off all caffeine. If you get any withdrawal symptoms, you know, damn well, that's what's happened. Those are withdrawal symptoms. Headaches, shakes, digestive problems, irritability. That's living proof that you're abusing the drug. When they need it, it will not be there for you. 
So taper off slowly. And here's what we know. The half-life of caffeine in our body is five hours. That means the caffeine you took at 5 p.m. is at half strength when you go to bed at 10 p.m. It makes us have bad quality sleep. What we got to do is afternoon, cut off caffeine and use some discipline. Here's what we know, too. Some very recent research on this, replicated, nailed down over and over again. Coffee appears to be just about one of the best things we can put in our body. Tea's right behind it. Coffee drinkers across the board are living several years longer than non-coffee drinkers. A lot of people are like, I must be freaking immortal then, yeah? But, but here's what we know. Two, three, maybe four normal cups of coffee a day, normal cups, are really good for us. Two cups of coffee at breakfast, two cups at lunch, then switch to decaf and take all you want. The sodas, uh, two studies last year shown these sugary sodas are carcinogens. There's research that leads believe that the, the diet sodas are worse. We're metabolizing those diet sodas different than we thought we were. One soda a day is not going to kill us. It's like having one candy bar a day. If you only form a hydration soda, it's just like your only diet is candy bars. And one diet soda a day is not going to kill us. But if your blood type is diet Coke, if that's your only form of hydration, this is very, very bad for us. And the energy drinks are worst of all. We've been at war for 17, going on 18 years now. For the first 15 years, the U.S. military passed out energy drinks like water. They gave them us, we gave them the troops, and we nice guys. And then two years ago, there were two major Department of Defense-wide studies on the energy drinks. Today, for all practical purpose across the U.S. Armed Forces, there is a ban on issuing energy drinks to anybody in the military. They're like cigarettes. You want to buy them? Yeah, we're not going to stop you, but we'll never buy them for you. You want to buy energy drinks? Well, you're an adult. We're not going to stop you, but we will never buy them for you. In an academic environment, the one pounding down the most energy drinks were the ones with the worst grades. In a tactical environment, the one taking the most energy drinks were the ones most likely to not off on the job. All there is in that energy drink is a mega dose of caffeine. And maybe some other stuff will help you metabolize it faster. The energy drinks will give you a one-hour burst of physical ability, and then you crash. After the first energy drink, all the others accomplish nothing. Only you feel good for about 10 minutes. The third one, you feel good for about five minutes. The fourth one, you feel good for about three minutes. But they're not doing you any good. And the first one's not doing any good unless you're an athlete, had a one-hour burst of physical activity. Water, coffee, tea, in proper amounts, switch to decaf. Gatorade, docs say uh, if you're sweating a lot, cut the Gatorade 50%, pound it down, replace the electrolytes in your body. There's so many good things we put in our body. But caffeine is such a valuable resource if we don't abuse it. So here's what this one guy is teaching across the spec ops community. And he's really nailed it about what caffeine is doing for us. And we all know, here's the sleep line. You fall asleep, you drop below the sleep line, some shallow sleep, and then some deep sleep. Now, folks, we now realize that a lot of major things happen in that deep cycle sleep. That's when the major tendon, the muscle, relaxes. Chronic sleep deprivation and chronic pain are closely associated. You know, we look at our opiate epidemic. A lot of debt variables in there, but at least the prescription opiates have always been there. What's the new factor? Well, sleep deprivation creates chronic pain. The tendons and muscles never relax. Doc, I heard all the time. Give me a pill to fix it. You need more sleep, you idiot. And so this deep cycle sleep, we now know some real recent powerful research 
during deep cycle sleep is when the body flushes all the garbage out of the brain. All those used up neurotransmitters are flushed out during deep cycle sleep. If you never get deep cycle sleep, what happens to all that garbage? Well, one of the major areas of research in our lifetime is Alzheimer's and dementia. Alzheimer's is the most common form of dementia. Well, why is there so much of it? What can we do about it? And study after study shows a powerful link between sleep deprivation and bad quality sleep and Alzheimer's and dementia. Now, I'm leaving out REM sleep. It happens later in the night. Don't let naps get in the way of a good night's sleep. Naps can't fully make up for a good night's sleep. There's caffeine in your body. This sleep line moves. That's what the caffeine does. This sleep line moves. You wake up and roll over here, 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 and here, and you're not getting the deep cycle sleep here, here, and here. That's what caffeine is doing to us. It's making us have bad quality sleep. Guard your sleep. Protect your sleep. Sleep is that little vacation that waits at the end of every day. And caffeine is the enemy of good sleep. It is a powerful, useful, effective drug. And if you use it appropriately, then you've got to change shifts. You do extended operations. Caffeine is there for you. You're driving your family home from vacation. It's 2 o'clock in the morning. Your head is bobbing. Your entire family is at risk. And caffeine ain't doing you no damn good because you've been abusing caffeine every day of your life. You've got an emergency and, and people's lives are on your hands. And you've got you to really max it out and be there for them for, for extended periods of the time. But caffeine is not there for you because you're abusing it on a daily basis. Sorry, the medical professionals of all else should use caffeine appropriately and understand the dynamics we're talking about here. Well, we, we changed topics here, and, it, and we're going to another topic, and we're kind of going fast and furious on the stuff that I, I cover in a day. But what I want to do Great. is talk about what happens in the body in a life and death event. I teach them we, we, we want to live our lives in, uh, in, in the heart rate is low. And this is really, this is, the concept is we, we live our lives in condition yellow. Now, condition white is denial. If we're in condition white and bad stuff happens, we're blindsided. And we, we, we didn't have security out there. We didn't prepare for violence. When it happens, boom, we're destroyed. Condition yellow is a state of readiness. We have security on site. We do the proper procedures. Anything goes wrong, you pop up condition red. Now, a basketball player is out on the court. Basketball players rocking and rolling condition red. The basketball player can function in condition red because he's done 100,000 shots. He shot left hand, right hand, moving in, moving out. In the game, boom, he makes that snapshot. Or you give him five seconds to make a free throw. Study basketball players making free throws. He's taking a deep breath. He's pulling his heart rate down. He's pulling himself down to condition yellow. Regains fine motor control. Makes his free throw. The point man on the entry team goes in the door in condition red. Or he goes in the door in condition yellow. Somebody pops up closer and shoots at him. He pops a red, rocks and rolls, comes back down again. But who, in life and death situations, must live in condition yellow, must keep their heart rate low, must never lose fine motor control? Pilots. My helicopter pilot loses fine motor control on a close approach. On the hot LZ, we're all having a very bad day. How's the pilot's voice always sound come over the radio? Calm. The worst it gets, a calm it again. Houston, we have a problem. Yeah? We're going in the Hudson. Yeah? How did they do that? They found it the hard way in 10,000 dogfights and 50,000 aviation emergencies coming over the radio for, 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 for almost 100 years. If you can't control your voice, you can't control your hands. If my doc loses fine motor control, 
Well, my life has slipped into his hands. I'm having a bad day. Understand? But here's the key now. Here's the capstone. And leaders. Can we all agree that our leaders in all these life and death environments, military, law enforcement, first responders, medical, our leaders have got to remain calm. Can we, I mean, that's just a fundamental thing we can all grasp. When things are going to hell and people are dying, our leaders have got to remain calm. And so what that means to us is we nurture an environment of a quiet professional, the laconic Spartan, the stoic Roman, the inscrutable samurai, the stiff upper lip Brits, and the day we talk about the quiet professional. Those are all different ways to say the same thing. The, the cultures who are known for the ability to control their emotions. We are what we practice to do. And if we practice having temper tantrums, when things go to hell, that's what we're going to do. Nobody respects our temper tantrum. We're all human. We all lose it sometimes. When we lose it, we know we made a mistake. Try a better job the next time. Nobody respects our temper tantrum. And as we get older, we'll get better at that. We've got to understand it is embarrassing to lose our cool. You can choose somebody out and never raise your voice. If you scream and shout, you're the one that has the problem, not them. Do you understand? And so we nurture this environment of the quiet professional. Remember, condition white is denial. It traps us. When bad things happen, we go straight. This realm we call condition black. So I was uh, a West Point psychology professor. The top military minds, the top psych minds after World War II put their heads together. What do we want every West Point officer to know about psychology? And it begins with this. We've got the uh, sympathetic nervous system. We all know is pretty much you know, fight or flight. And we've got that parasympathetic nervous system, also known as rest and uh, digest. We're realizing the power of food to calm people down. Now, in a nutshell, PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, is every time you remember it, you relive it. So the path to healing is, is remembering it without reliving it. And one of the tools we're, we're finding, we'd be, I've used breathing for over 20 years, conducting interviews, and it started to become emotional. And I know some counterproductive that make it stop and breathe. Today, we put a bottle of water in front of them. The act of taking a swig of water. Our military and our elite units all have camelbacks. They do a mag change, they take a hit of water. They do this, they take a hit of water. And every time they're doing that, they're calming themselves down and keeping themselves in condition yellow. But the ultimate point is, how do we stay in the zone? And that's a concept of stress inoculation. That's a concept of identifying those stressful things that will happen to you. Do it in a controlled environment and develop this ability. Firefighters face real burning out with firing training. Cops face uh, bullets, real plastic bullets that hurt in training. So when the real thing happens, they're not disturbed by this. And so these dynamics are important. And uh, uh, the breathing exercise is something we can do that lies at the heart of the matter, the breathing, to keep ourselves in the zone. We don't always have water that we can always stop and take a deep breath. And the, the breathing is a tool that we can use to, we can bring your heart rate down. You can bring your blood pressure down with simple breathing. We've taught the breathing for decades, and we taught the breathing for the nose. Wow, well, that's what seems to work. Well, a study last year showed that a deep breath in through the nose can have a major effect in some areas, but it wasn't working the same way through the mouth. But what we teach people is you breathe in through the nose for four count, hold for four count, out through the lips for four count, hold for four count, again and again. You can always have a bottle of water there. You can always uh, grab an M&M. 
but you can always stop and take a deep breath. I've got vast numbers of case studies in my files, 21 years in the road doing this. I get emails on a steady basis. And if all the topics, the breathing has saved the most lives, that had the most impact. And I'll tell you, those people who go out there every day, put on the line for us, our first responders, our EMS, our, our emergency room, that all of those who put on the line for us, they deserve the very best that we have to give to them. You take every resource that you have, you dedicate everything and your power and care for them the way they deserve to be. Because they are two of the best that our civilization has to offer. And they deserve the best that we have to give to them. So thank you for the opportunity to share this with the magnificent men and women that you're working with. It's been my honor. It's been my privilege. Uh, God bless and stay safe. And that wraps up a great episode from the Wellness Think Tank. Special thanks to our exclusive sponsors, U.S. Acute Care Solutions. You can reach us also on Twitter at WellnessTT. Until next time, remember that residency training should be about thriving and not just surviving.